Ezekiel chapter 20, starting in verse 45, all the way to chapter 21, verse 13. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the south land, preach against the south, and prophesy against the forest land in the Negeb. Say to the forest of the Negeb, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you, and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from south to north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, Is he not a maker of parables? The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries, prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked, because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north, and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again." As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan before their eyes. And when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt and all hands will be feeble. Every spirit will, be, will faint and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and it will be fulfilled, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished Sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice? You have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. So the sword is given to be polished, that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for, against, for it is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Strike, therefore, upon your thigh, for it will not be a testing what could it do if you despise the rod, declares the Lord God. Now, Ezekiel, as you know in our study, has been talking a lot about the coming judgment of Babylon to Jerusalem in that time period that he was living. And last time we were together, though, we looked at how he prophesied about the tribulation period, which is going to happen at the end of the ages, which is still yet to come. Tonight, I want you to see that these verses that we're looking at here at the end of chapter 20 and into the beginning of chapter 21, please be reminded that when Ezekiel wrote this, there were no chapter breaks. That these verses we're covering still continue to talk about the last days and the judgment on the whole world. And especially as you're going to see certain nations in the process as he deals with all nations as well as the nation of Israel. Ezekiel's going to, as we pick up next time we get together in chapter 21 verse 14, he'll start prophesying again about the coming Babylonian attack, the third wave that is going to be coming in 588 that ends in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar finalizes his attack on Jerusalem and the city's burned and he carries people off to exile. But for tonight, we're going to continue to look at this prophecy that we're looking at. And I want you to see there's word clues in here tonight that show us that he's still talking about the judgment at the end of the tribulation period and not about the judgment that's coming with Nebuchadnezzar in the time that he's alive right there. All right. You with me? You understand what I'm saying? We're looking at the end of the tribulation. This prophecy is not dealing with the judgment that's coming with Nebuchadnezzar. It's dealing with what's to come down the, down the road at the end of the tribulation period. And we'll show, see that tonight from some word clues that are here. The first word clue uh, is not as clear in some translations as others. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 20 and look at verse uh, 46, after it says in verse 45, the word of the Lord came to me, verse 46, Son of man, set your face toward the south land, 
and preach against the south and prophesy against the forest land in the Negeb. Some of your translations don't say preach against the south land. What do they say? South. Does anybody have a translation? What? Teman. Very good. Actually, those of you that have the translation that say Teman, I think that's the best translation of the Hebrew here. And you're going to see why. Yes, he's to prophesy to the south. And as you're going to see tonight, the Negeb, that area of the Negeb is south of Jerusalem. It's the area around, as you're going to see later tonight, around Basra and Petra. And as you know, that's the area where the Israelites are going to, at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple and declares himself to be God, they're going to run to the wilderness and they're going to be hidden in that area, protected by God. But that's the area south of Jerusalem. It's called the Negev in the south land. But it's also, as you're going to see tonight, where the Edomites lived. And he says, I want you to prophesy against the land, though. And you'll see the prophecy is that he's going to be sending a scorching fire against the land. But when he says Teman, that's extremely important for us because it's showing us that the judgment's not only against the land there in the south, but because of the people that had lived there. And you're going to see that tonight. So go with me to Genesis chapter 36. Teman was a descendant of Esau. Genesis chapter 36. You remember Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. Esau was born first and Jacob was born second. But Jacob took the blessing from his brother. And there had been kind of a bitterness between the two for many, many years, as you know. Esau... As we see in chapter 36, starting in verse 6, it says, Esau took his wives, his sons and his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock and all his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. You're going to hear that term used a lot, Mount Seir. Esau is who? according to your Bible there in the parentheses. Esau is Edom. You ever heard of the Edomites in the Bible? They're the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. So we see that Teman is a descendant of Esau. Go to chapter 36, verses 40 through 43. So these are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs are Timnah, Alva, Jetha, Olibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mizbar, Magdiel, and Eram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. So we know now that when the prophecy in Ezekiel, when he says preach toward Teman, like I say, a lot of translations said toward the south, the actual Hebrew is Teman. When it says preach toward Teman or the south, it's the same area. That's where Esau's descendants all went south of Jerusalem. If you were to look at a map today, it would be southeast of Jerusalem. Actually, what we would call the southwestern border of Jordan now, in the southwestern area of the, of the country of Jordan. All right? So, what you may not realize, though, and you're about to find out just a small portion of it, and it may seem like a large portion of it to you, but you're going to find out, they may not know, there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies against the Edomites and what's going to be coming to them in the last days. So I want to start showing you some. So uh, let's go to the book of Amos to start off with. 
Amos chapter 1. Look at verses 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, and he cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. So here Amos is prophesying. By the way, he prophesies earlier than Isaiah even. He had been used by God to prophesy that God was going to send a fire against Teman, or the Southland area that we know now from Ezekiel is the Negev. He is going to send a fire against them. But can, from the passage, why? Why is God going to one day judge and send a fire against Edom? Because of how he treated his brother. Who's Edom's brother? Jacob, which is the nation of Israel. We're going to get into more specific detail about that tonight to show you some more specifics. But just keep that in mind. We've already read in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 45 and following, that God told Ezekiel to turn and prophesy toward the area of Teman, the south land, the area of the Negev. And he was to prophesy that God was going to send a scorching fire upon that area that all flesh would see. Here we see Amos said the same thing, that he's going to send a fire, kindle fire against Teman, the area of Edom of the Edomites, Esau's descendants, because of how they treated Israel. But more of that later on. Turn over one book to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah might be one of the earliest prophets. And Obadiah wrote in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, it says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day? Remember, those are the key terms in prophecy that talk about the last days. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off for slaughter. So here again, we see one of the earliest prophets in the nation of Israel was used by God to prophesy that this massive judgment was going to be coming against the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Go to Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah chapter 49, look at verses 7 through 22. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time when I punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? Does that sound familiar, anybody? Jeremiah is quoting Obadiah. 
But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. For thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse, and all her cities shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her, and rise up for battle. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind. The horror you inspire has deceived you, and the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord." Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there. No man shall sojourn in her. Behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle of the Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make him run away from her. I will make... I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore hear the plan that the Lord has made against Edom and the purposes that he has formed against the inhabitants of Teman. Even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their folds shall be appalled at their fate. At the sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. The sound of their cry shall be heard at the Red Sea. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Basra. And the heart of the warriors of Edom shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. So once again, we see in this long section a prophecy about the coming judgment on Edom. And as you can see in some of the word clues, it's still yet to come. Now we're going to deal with some questions about that in a little bit. But we're not done looking at Old Testament prophecies about the judgment of Edom. Let's keep going. Go to Ezekiel chapter 25. And like I told you at the beginning, this is just a small section of what the scripture says of what's going to happen to Edom. Ezekiel 25, look at verses 12 through 14. We get a little more information in this prophecy here. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast, and I will make it desolate from Teman, even to Dedan, they shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel." And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Now we get a little bit more of a clue. Who is God going to use in bringing this judgment on Edom? The Israelites. The Israelites. But we also see that it's because of how they acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Yes, sir. Sure. Yes. Yes. But did you read, you remember what he said in Amos? What Esau did, their descendants all did perpetually. Do you remember that? That's a great question because it sure looks like they're going to be judged for what Esau did. But remember, Amos said they acted perpetually. In other words, the same attitude Esau had toward his brother, 
all his descendants. Hey, let's be honest. Have you ever dealt with a family that all pretty much, as a pastor, let me just put it to you straight. There were people that I prayed would go see Jesus quick. Because I thought, because they were a pain in the backside a few times, I thought, hey, you know what? If this guy would just, you know, go see the Lord, uh, things would be okay in the church. But you know what I found out? His kids just kept the same thing going. And it, that same attitude that was in dad was in the kids and in the family. And you, you've run across that, haven't you? That's why as people that pastor some parts of the South, they have a hard time if there's a lot of people that are all related. Because you mess with one, you're messing with all of them. And in the same way, the attitude of Esau, great question though, the scripture said had perpetuated throughout all generations. And you're going to see that tonight as well. Great question though. Great question. All right. Go to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah 34. Look at verses 1 through 10. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. So who is this prophecy being told now to? All the nations. Don't miss this. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain to be, shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. By the way, does that sound familiar? That was our study of Revelation, wasn't it? That's going to happen at the very end of the tribulation period. All these things are going to happen. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom, Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with, flat, with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur, and her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever." From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Has this prophecy happened yet? Obviously not. And just like Ezekiel was told, you prophesy against that area, that Southland area of Teman, I'm going to send a fire and it will not be quenched. And all flesh will see it. So somehow, some way, and I don't want to get into this too soon tonight, but it's somehow, some way, in the last days, at the end of the tribulation period, as God is protecting the nation of Israel in that same area, he's going to be bringing a judgment on the people and that land that's going to get everybody's attention. And of course, as you know from our Revelation study, when Jesus comes back to the earth, he comes back to where they are in Basra. And as you know, in chapter 63 of Isaiah, the scripture says, who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained in blood? It's the Lord. And he comes as he, he comes with the nation of Israel back to the battle of Armageddon, defeating his enemies all the way to Jerusalem. So we've seen now that there's word clues a little bit we've seen in Ezekiel that this has to be the tribulation period at the end of the tribulation period. He's not talking about the judgment on Israel that's happening during Nebuchadnezzar's time. We also need to go back to Ezekiel chapter 20 and look at verses 47 and 48 again. 
And we need to note that when this fire is kindled against Edom, all flesh will see it. And God's fire will not be quenched. Look at verses 47 and 48. He says, Say to the forest of the Negev, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from south to north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they're saying of me, Is he not a maker of parables? We'll come back to that verse, verse 49, in just a bit. But do you see the prophecy now lines up with all the other prophecies that at the end, at the very last time, he's going to send a fire against Edom in that area, and the whole world's going to see it as he judges Edom and the nations at the same time. And the area of the Negev, south of Jerusalem, is going to burn as a perpetual fire that everybody will know that the Lord has done it. Also, he's at the same time, if you remember from chapter 21, he's also, while he's bringing his final judgment on Edom, he'll at the same time be purifying his people Israel in the process. Look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. And preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against what? All flesh from south to north and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath and it shall not be sheathed again. So he's going to be emptying the land of Israel of the righteous and the wicked in this process, judging all the nations and all flesh on earth at the same time, as he's also dealing with Edom. As you're about to see by the end of tonight's study, God has been keeping track of everything that's been done. And in those days, he is going to be pouring out the wrath that everybody deserves because he's kept track of how they have acted it's going to be a horrific time. Folks, aren't we glad that we're part of the church is going to be taken before this happens? And it's not an escape. The reason we're not going to be here is he's going to be removing peace from the earth. He's going to be removing the Holy Spirit's action of salt and slowing the decay in the light through the Holy Spirit's actions in the church. And if God removes his Holy Spirit in that way, guess who goes with it? Those of us who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who will never, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's why we're being taken prior. It's not that this is an escape. We're going through tribulations and trials now. Christians are being put to death. This have been all throughout history, being put to death probably even more now because of their faith. But that's not the issue. Don't let people say, well, you pre-trib people think, well, you're just trying to get the escape. No. When God removes the peace from the earth, the Holy Spirit will still have an action of some sort, but it won't be like it is now because he's slowing the decay. But when... He who restrains has been removed. We have to go with him. We have to go with him. And he's going to be removed before the tribulation period because that's the time of Jacob's trouble and the time that he's going to judge the whole world. Our sins have already been judged. So we won't be here for that part. But folks, let me just tell you, as much as we see wickedness increasing in our day, you can't even compare what it's going to be like when there is no restraining force of the Holy Spirit at all on this earth. It's going to be unbelievable. At the same time, God is going to pour out his wrath at the same time. Now, also, if you go to Ezekiel chapter uh, 20, 
1. Look at verses 28 through 30. As I told you, the verses we're looking at tonight, chapter 20, verses 45 through 21, 13, are dealing with the end of the tribulation period. But then he'll go back to dealing with more recent prophecies or more timely to where he is in the day and age he's prophesying. But if you go to 21, verse 28, you'll see, and it says, And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, say, A sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume into flash like light. While they see, see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you to place on you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day is come, the time of their final punishment, return it to its sheath in the place where you were created in the land of your origin. I will judge you. Now, in other words, here he says he's talking to prophecy against the Ammonites, and he's going to bring them a judgment. But when he deals with the Ammonites, he's going to put his sword back in his sheath. The time of judging the Ammonites will come to an end and he'll put it back. Does, does anybody remember anything we've looked at? And if you haven't, it's been a while. That's okay. Go back with me to Jeremiah 49. Look at verses 1 through 6. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 1, concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah. Put on sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro among the hedges. For Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his, his officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasure, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all who are around you. And you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives." But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. So when God's done judging the Ammonites, as we've already looked at, at the end of the tribulation period, he'll restore their fortunes during the millennial kingdom. If you were to go and read the passage we have already read tonight, chapter 49, verses 7 and following, you will find that he never says that he's going to ever restore the fortunes of Edom. If you then go on to the judgment on Elam, you'll find in verse 39, but in the latter days, I'll restore the fortunes of Edom, declares the Lord. But if you go back and look through that whole prophecy against uh, Edom and Damascus, there's nowhere that he says that he'll restore their fortunes during the millennial kingdom. You know why? Because the prophecy here said that when he brings his sword out against the Edomites, he'll never, never sheathe it again. The judgment on them is final. He doesn't put it away. It stays final for them. And we're going to deal in just a little bit with why. But there's another word clue in this section that we're looking at tonight that shows us that he's talking about... Uh, a future prophecy, not the prophecy of what was going on right then. It's Ezekiel's reaction to what God has him do. Look again in verse 49 of chapter 20. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they're saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? In other words, in my understanding, it appears that Ezekiel doesn't quite understand the prophecy himself. Right? I mean, he's told to turn and prophesy toward this land, toward the south. And say that it, this judgment on the land and Teman. And I think Ezekiel's worried that the cryptic nature of this prophecy will make him look bad in the eyes of the Israelites who are already mocking him. You see, if we were to look back at the prophecy that Ezekiel's been giving to the nation of Israel in captivity there in Babylon and also to be passed on back to the Jews who are still in Jerusalem, it's obvious that he understands what's going to go on. 
correct? As he gives the prophecy and he's told to lay on his side for so long and all this, and he talks about the siege works and he talks about all that, it's very clear that Ezekiel knows exactly what he's talking about. And then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. But now he's given a prophecy and he's told to turn and face the south area and now not even talk to the people that he's talk, been talking to all along. He's to go face toward the south and prophesy against this land. He doesn't even understand what he's talking about. And he goes, um, if I don't understand it, they're not going to understand it. And they're already accusing me of being a maker of parables. Now you want me to prophesy something that doesn't even make sense to me? And I want to remind you from showing you in scriptures that there were a lot of things that the Old Testament prophets were told to talk about which weren't to be understood in their day. Why? Because it's for our day. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 30. Let me show you one verse, verse 34. Oh, sorry, 24. Jeremiah 30, verse 24. In this section where God is speaking through Jeremiah about how he's going to restore the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah and all that during the millennial kingdom. Verse 24 says, The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days you will understand this. In other words, it won't be understood at the time that it was being said. It's going to be understood in our day. Now with that said, I want you to stick with me here. I'm not even sure how specifically what we're looking at tonight and all these prophecies that are still yet to happen are going to be fulfilled. There's speculation. I could give you some speculation, but I would be just simply getting you excited about stuff that I don't know is true. But we do know this much, that God's going to use the nation of Israel to dispossess the people in that area. Let me just throw this much out to you. If you were to look at Psalm 83 and look at the prophecy in Psalm 83, and you can look at it later on, you'll find that in Psalm 83, there's a prophecy that the nations that are right now on the border of Israel, Syria, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, and so on, that are the enemies of Israel, the ones that are right there on their borders that are wanting to get them out of that land and not wanting them there, that there's going to be a war that happens where all of their enemies are defeated and Israel gets to take that land. Now, there's also a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 17 that says that the city of Damascus, Syria, by the way, the longest inhabited city perpetually in the history of the world. There's only one other, there's no other city that has been had continual people living in it. It's been over 5,000 years that someone has lived without being removed to Damascus, Syria. And Isaiah 17 says that in the evening it'll be there, in the morning it'll be gone. That's still coming. Now, with that all said, keep in mind, Syria is going to, the Damascus Syria is going to be laid waste. The nations that are right now on the border of Israel, the prophecy in Psalm 83 says they're going to be all judged at the same time and dispossessed in one war. And then if you get to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, which we'll probably get there about 2018. But, if you, uh, but when you get to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and you see the Gog and the Magog battle, and all the nations that are named that are coming against Israel, which I believe, and I'm going to show you scripturally, starts at the midpoint of the tribulation, culminates at the end of the tribulation, the Gog and Magog battle. The nations that are right now the enemies of Israel that are on the border aren't mentioned. Oh, but the prophecy does say that when Gog and Magog comes, and that's Russia and Iran and other nations, they all come to go against, uh, Turkey's there as well, when they come to go against Israel in the Gog and Magog battle, Israel's living in unwalled cities. That means the neighbors that are all right there wanting them gone 
have been dealt with prior to that. So is some of this stuff going to happen that way? Possibly. That's why we need to know the prophecies, know what the scripture says so we can be paying attention to what's going on, but don't try to predict on how it's all going to play out. But we've got to let the whole of scripture show us there is still a judgment coming on the whole world, specifically for Edom, which we're going to get to in a little bit more detail. Also, he's going to be purifying the nation of Israel through the process and judging all the nations at the same time at the very end. And we're going to get to in a little bit as to why. Go to Daniel chapter 12. Let me show you something. Daniel was given a lot of insight. Or let's just back it up. Daniel was given a lot of description of what's going to be happening in the last days. But he didn't even understand it. Daniel chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 10. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. That's Israel. Daniel's being told this, by the way. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. We're living in those days now. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the, bank of the other bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left and his left hand, raised his right hand in his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Does that sound familiar from our Revelation study? That's a three and a half year period. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. Now, if you remember in Revelation, in chapter 22, John is told not to seal up the words of the prophecy that he was given in the book of Revelation because the time is near. So we're living in the days in which knowledge has increased and we have understanding. But don't think we have full understanding yet. We don't. But we need to know what the Bible says is going to be coming for lots of reasons. But one, it'll keep you from being trapped by bad teaching and bad theology about how it's all about the church and the church is the kingdom now and all this stuff. The Bible's very, very clear. Jesus himself said, all the things written by the, about me and the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it's obvious, as we've read tonight, has what we've read about happening to Edom and the whole world happened yet? Very clearly. So it's still yet to come. How will it all play out? Don't know. But it will. Now, some of you may know why God's promising judgment on Edom, and some of you may not. So I want to take a little bit of time to show you why God's going after Edom. We've seen a couple of clues about it tonight. Amos said it's because they treated their brother badly. Well, it goes all the way back to God's promise to Abraham. We're not going to have you turn there because of time. But in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. 
And then he makes this promise, and he says, and everyone who blesses you, I will bless. And everyone who curses you, I will curse. All right? Some of you may not know this. Even though Edom, Esau, was the brother of Israel, Jacob, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt to bring them into the land promised to them, the Edomites would not let them pass through their land in the process. When God was bringing the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he was trying to bring them to the promised land, they got to the border of Esau's territory. Well, let me have you read it with me. Go to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, look at verses 14 through 21. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met. How our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice, and he sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through a field or a vineyard or even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway. And if we drink of your water, and I and my livestock, then I'll pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. And thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. So in answer to your question... Were they being judged for what Esau did? They're being judged for what they did. It, remember, perpetually, they were against the nation of Israel all along. And here, they said, look, we'll just stay on the road. We won't eat a thing. We won't drink a thing. Just let us pass through. We won't even stop walking. We won't even tinkle. And they said no. And then they came after him with sword. Had him go another way. By the way, there's another reason. And see, it's interesting. Some of you may or may not know this. Nearer to the time that Ezekiel is prophesying, when the Babylonians were coming to attack Israel, guess who said, pass through our land on the way to go attack Israel? Esau's descendants. The same people that said to their brother, you can't come through, said, hey, you guys want to go through and attack my brother? Go right ahead. Have free passage right through our land to go attack. Let me show you. Go with me to uh, Ezekiel 35. Ezekiel 35, look at verses 1 through 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. That's the area of Edom again. And prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. That perpetual enmity, does that sound familiar? That's Amos' prophecy, isn't it? And you gave uh, the the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you. 
because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation. I will cut off from it all who come and go, and I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall, and I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your city shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you said these two nations, by the way, that's Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and the envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them. And when I judge you and you shall know that I am the Lord, I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying they are laid desolate. They are given to us to devour. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So when's the whole earth going to celebrate? That's the millennial kingdom. What's going to happen to the Edom area of Edom during that time period? Destroyed and it's going to be continually pitched and sulfur and burnt. But isn't that interesting? What they also had been wanting all along was the land promised to Israel, Jacob. And when the Babylonians came and took them all captive, that's when the Edomites all came in and said, we get to live in this area now. It's ours. Don't miss this, folks. God was keeping track. God has been keeping track all along. He actually knew before the foundation of the earth how it all was going to play out because he's outside of time and he saw it. Yet at the same time, they're still guilty of what they've done. And when the judgment comes, listen, on all the nations, all the nations will be dealt with because of their sin and how they treated Israel. Edom, Damascus, when they're judged, it'll be a final judgment. They don't get to live in the millennial kingdom and be a part of what God's going to do when he restores things. What does that say about us here in America? God's keeping track. Uh, Go real quickly with me to Joel chapter 3. Look at verse 1. For behold... In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Folks, I don't know which side of the aisle you're on, and I don't care, but both Republican and Democrat Leadership in our country has for years been telling Israel to give up some of the land for peace. What does the Bible say? God's one day going to keep track. He's been keeping track and he's going to judge all the nations because of how they treated Israel and because they divided his land. Oh, keeping this in mind, he's going to judge all the nations by how they treated Israel, correct? Go with me to Matthew 25. And let's interpret this passage correctly. Look at verse 31. 
when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. If Jesus is coming and sitting on his throne, where's the throne? It's here. And then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, like we just read in Joel 3, and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty? and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Who are, who are his brothers, according to scripture? The Jews, folks. Too long we've had this passage preached to us that how we get to heaven is by being nice to other people and giving them water or visiting them in prison. Oh, there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but are you saved by giving someone a glass of water? No, you're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But when Jesus comes, this is Joel chapter 3. The sheep and the goats is when he determines who's going to live in the millennial kingdom and who's not. Oh, by the way, there will be no Edomites that survive this. Because they have been perpetually against Israel. Folks, pray for our leadership. Pray for our, those in leadership in our country that they would be pro-Israel. Because that will be good for you and us. But we're still, a judgment is coming. Now let me throw something else out as well. God also is keeping track of how people treat the church. Remember when Paul was out there ravaging the church, pulling people out of their homes and putting them to prison or death? And Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and he, and he knocks him off his horse and blinds him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Do you know what he says next? Me. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting these people? Jesus takes it personally when his children, the church, his bride, his brothers, remember all the way through the scriptures, Jesus called them his friends, but then he says, I no longer call you a servant. Remember, I call you my friends because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but I'm going to tell you everything I'm doing. But then he changes it. On the Sunday that he rose from the dead, he tells the women, go tell my brothers. No longer friends. They're now family. And because of his death, we become children of God. We're born of the Spirit into the kingdom of God through the Spirit. And listen, we then become children of God and we have an inheritance that is waiting for us. Folks, we have no idea all that God has in store for us. I tell you, in a weird way, I thank God for my cancer because it has helped me focus. It's helped me focus on what's most important. That's why when Peter wrote to the Jews who were scattered, the Christian Jews who had been scattered because of their faith in Jesus, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and following, Peter, to the exiles of the dispersion. And he's writing to people who, because of their faith, had lost their homes and lost their families and lost their jobs and lost everything they had. And now they're living in parts of the world they've never lived in before and they don't have anything. And he has the nerve to write in verse 3, Praise God! 
He doesn't write to them and say, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Oh, I wish I could do something for you. He says to them, to the ones who have been scattered because of their faith in Jesus, he says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Did you catch it? Yeah, you might have lost some stuff in this life, but you have honestly, let me remind you, been given something through Christ, that's something that will never, ever be taken away from you. And that's where you need to be focused. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, if necessary, you may have had to face trials of various kinds. These trials have come to prove your faith genuine and result in praise and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. Listen closely. And though you don't see him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you are being filled with a joy that is inexpressible because you're obtaining the goal of your faith. Don't miss this. The salvation of your souls. You see, when we hear the word salvation, too many of us think of the day we got saved. The Bible doesn't talk about salvation that way. The Bible talks about the whole aspect of salvation, where the day that I trusted Christ as my Savior in 1973, I was saved, but that was my justification. The Bible says that I'm to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm in the process of being saved right now. Oh, I was saved, and I am saved, but I'm being saved. I'm being sanctified and the Bible says that Jesus will bring with him salvation. Well, how come Jesus is bringing salvation if I already got it? Well, because when God looks at salvation, he sees the whole thing. Yes, there was a moment where you trusted Christ and you were saved. But if you think that's all you need, I don't think you got it. I've heard too many Christians say, I'm saved, I'm good, I'm saved, I'm fine. Well, the Bible says that you're saved, being saved, and one day will be saved. I'm obtaining the goal of my faith, the salvation of my soul. In other words, I don't have it yet. Oh, I got it. The Bible says he sealed me with his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that I've got it. But I'm still in the process of being conformed into his image. And one day I'm going to receive it. Folks, if you live for this life, you're going to be disappointed. Because God really isn't that concerned with your comfort in this life. So he wrote to those who were going through some horrific stuff. He says, praise God, everything's right on schedule. And it's time the church in these days understood God keeps track. God's paying attention. But I also want to tell you, there's going to be a judgment for us. Just like there's going to be a judgment of the nations and judgment of the lost. There is the judgment seat of Christ where the Bible says we're all going to experience as believers the judgment seat of Christ where we'll receive reward or loss of reward for what we've done in the body since salvation, whether good or the Bible word is worthless. Some of your translations say good or bad, but worthless is a better translation. In other words, one day, God, who's been keeping track of how we've been treating each other, is going to one day judge us as well. And you're going to miss out. The parents, were there times you wanted to bless your kids, but because of their disobedience, you couldn't? And they missed out on a blessing? The Bible says that there are going to be those who suffer loss, what they could have had as their inheritance for eternity, and they're going to miss out on it. Because just as much as God's keeping track of everything Edom has done and Israel has gone through, 
and the Germans have done, and the United States have done. He's keeping track of everything we do as well. Now, it doesn't determine whether or not we get into heaven or not. That's already been signed, sealed, and delivered. But at the same time, what? He's going to reward us. And I don't want you to miss out on it. And so maybe a trial or two would be good for you. Because it might focus you on what's most important. Let's close tonight with Malachi chapter 1 and then chapter 3. All of a sudden, something that has been a hard passage for many years is going to make a whole lot more sense tonight. You know why? Because you read the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jack the jackals of the desert. You say, wait a minute, Jim, does that mean it's already been done? Keep reading. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. If you do a study of God's judgment on the Edomites, you'll run across people on the web that are saying that all the judgments of Edom have already been done. That's why that area where Petra is and Basra, there's only like a thousand people living in there now. The judgments already happened. No, 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 no. All throughout history, God's been bringing judgments on Edom because of their sin. But that final judgment that we read about tonight has not happened yet. There are still people living there. It is not perpetually burning. The final judgment doesn't happen until the end of the tribulation period. And even though he had at this point made their land a waste. They said, we'll rebuild. And he says, have fun. But I'll win. And go to chapter 3 of Malachi and look at verse 16. And those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And by the way, I would love to put in your Bibles, instead of the word serve, the word trusts. Because we hear the word serve and we think trying to work for him and do things that make him happy. No, to serve God is to trust God. He's not served by human hands if he needed anything. We're to serve the Lord with gladness, but he's not served by human hands. The word serve is translated worship, trust, depend on him. So folks, God's keeping track. And he's knowing full well what's going to happen, and he's got it all played out. And we may see some of it in our day, and I believe many of us will. Yet at the same time, you're going to face a judgment. I don't want you to miss out on reward. I always loved the teacher that wanted me to get a good grade. You ever had one of those teachers that when you were taking a test, they'd walk up and down the aisle and they'd look down and they'd say, why don't you relook at number seven? And I'd go, I want to kiss you. Because what I knew what they were saying was, is you messed that one up, but I want you to get it fixed before I grade it. Your heavenly father wants to bless. So humble yourself. And say, Lord, I don't want to miss out on stuff you got for me in this life and in the life to come.
Thanks for coming. I love you.